It's the lies we tell ourselves. Mm. They hurt us the most. I'm no good. Nobody will want me. I've got nothing to offer. Everyone has something to offer the world, everyone. And you just have to decide. I don't know what it is, but I've got something. Best-selling author, creator of her own therapy, Marissa Peer, thank you for joining me on Women of Impact. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. I'm so excited to have you. This is the third time I think you've been on the show. Your book is absolutely amazing, and I've pulled out some amazing nuggets of gold that you have, and I'd really love to touch on OCD, numbing out, depression, body dysmorphia, and how you lay it out in the book is so beautiful because you take these really like deep, heavy subjects mm. um, that people mm. have had for years, if yeah, not their entire years. lives, and you're able to take them through this process that allows them to come to um, acknowledgement of it. And I'd mm. love to talk about each case, but I actually want you to start off with talking about RFPI because oh, yeah. I think that gives the framing to yeah. everything we're about to talk about. So RFPI means the role, the function, the purpose, and the intention of an illness. And no one says, my life's so boring, why don't I make myself ill? That's just not it. But very often, we have an illness, and it has a very particular role, function, and purpose. I worked with somebody once who said, you know, my mum's boyfriend used to look at me really funny, and I got really fat. Didn't so, and then I got contact dermatitis and he never touched me again because he thought it was disgusting that my skin would flake off. But she didn't really understand because she was 12 when this was happening. I've worked with many people who say, you know, my dad said, you've got to be a straight A student. You're going to run the family firm. And I suddenly got migraines that were so bad. And it's like, oh, this is great. I don't have to run the family firm anymore. But nobody really knows that. So in, in our TT, we go back and have a look at what was going on when you got it. And many doctors say, you know, it's the most fascinating part that the somehow, although none of us want to be sick, we suddenly realize that the sickness has a get out of jail card. Mm -hmm. Like if you're an alcoholic, no one expects anything. You don't have to run a job. No one expects you to drive your kids to school or have an in-depth car. He's drunk. That they can't handle that. She, she's got panic attacks. She, she's got a nervous anxiety. She can't do that because of the nervous stomach. And many clients will say, you know, I could have. I could have done that, but I had the depression, you see. I should have done that, but it was the 50 pounds. I just could never do that because I was always too heavy. And I began to realize how much clients had unconsciously... And I learned it from a five-year-old client who had eczema. And I was asking him something about the eczema. He said, well, every night I stand like that and mummy puts on cream and wet bandages and she doesn't put any cream on that baby when she's putting the cream in me. And I realized immediately that he'd watched mum mm. doing baby massage with a new baby. He said, can I have that? No, you're a big boy. Mummy, I want that. No, you're a big boy. And of course he thought, but I want mummy to massage me. So he thought that thought a lot. When you think a thought a lot, it's not a thought. It's a direct request to the mind, get my mum to massage me, whatever it takes. And now he's got eczema and she has to massage this cream onto him every night. And I had another very young little boy who had really terrible migraines, which is very unusual for a child. And I asked him the same question. I know this is a silly question, but if the headaches were your friend. And he said, well, when mommy and daddy shout, 
I get very bad headaches. And mummy calls me a little snake because we have to lie in a dark room. All the lights get turned off. It's got to be very quiet. And they stop shouting. You can only imagine a little kid of mm. five thinking, I want mummy and daddy to stop shouting. I wish they'd stop shouting. But that's not a thought. It's a request. It's an instruction. Stop them shouting, whatever it takes. And if your little kid gets excruciating migraines, of course you're going to stop shouting. So if that's happening at five, you can only imagine going through life. What request did you make? My most fascinating was a girl who had hypersensitivity to the light and couldn't go out. She was a coach, but she worked from home. And she said, you know, when I was a kid, I got bullied and I wished to stay home. I wanted to be so seductive being at home. You can watch cartoons eat candy, but my mum wouldn't let me. And I said, oh, please let me stay at home. I don't want to go to school. She said, be ridiculous. A year later, she can't go out because her skin burns in daylight. And you think, isn't that amazing? The power of the mind to tune into a thought and make it real, because that's what our mind does every minute. It's making our thoughts real. And if we only knew that, we'd make better thoughts. And then our body would make the better thoughts real, not the negative ones. It's so freaking powerful, everything you're saying. And when you relate it to a kid <coughs> and you go, oh, yeah, well, if you see that kid, you can actually see, you can kind of yeah. think through where they would go in life. But what's fascinating is obviously your clients, a lot of them are adults. And so you're trying to decipher, right, yeah. what that issue is and what that underlying issue mm. was that started everything. And so I'd love for you to actually take us through a couple of these people because it's so fascinating the way you break it down, the questions you ask them, and then how you're able to reveal the truth of where that um, stemmed from yeah. and then how they work through it. It's so powerful. So if you wouldn't mind taking me through, um, let's start with Carrie, Carrie who's OCD yeah. because... OCD is something I haven't spoken about much. Yeah. And it isn't necessarily perceived on the outside as mm. a big problem. It kind of like, oh, she's, I, I yeah. even joke about myself. Oh, I'm OCD. Um, <laughs> of course. But then it can become extremely oh, yeah. crippling. Huge. And, you know, one of the things I re realized early on is that a lot of conventional doctors and therapists have a belief if the problem is complex, the treatment's complex too. If the problem has been going on for 40 years, you need years of therapy. I've had people say to me, oh, this person, Dr. Simmons, this person's going to need five years of therapy. They're, they're going to take 10 years before they get better. So in came Carrie with OCD. So she washed her hands all the time, was cleaning her teeth for 25 minutes several times a day. And you think, well, that's okay, except they can't go out because you can't go out to dinner and go, hang on, I'm just going to clean my teeth. I'll be back in 25 minutes. And they get very stressed because things that are not quite right. And I knew straight away with OCD that you're controlling out there because you can't control in here. So when all the cushions are straight, all the silverware is straight, you don't set, tread on any cracks, you check the heating 25 times to make sure it's off. The feeling is if I control out there, I feel okay, but you don't feel okay because you have to control in here. So with Carrie, we just looked at her past, and it was, it was a very sad past. Her mother had multiple partners with multiple children. She never felt loved. She felt dirty and unwanted. But the minute she saw that, oh, I was trying to control out there because I was too little to control in here, she became a completely different girl, and it stopped literally overnight. In fact, she was on my training, and the next day she said, it was so weird, I went home. I was cleaning my teeth, and a voice said, you're done now, stop. And I went, okay. And I stopped, and she said, it's just never come back. 
But of course, she was creating the OCD to give herself a level of control. When you feel out of control and your life is a mess and you feel you can't control stuff, you start to control things. Mm. Everything is, every book's going to be lined up just so. And if I look at that, I think, oh, I did that, so it's okay. But actually what you want to say is, look at those books, they're all a mess. Who cares? I've got three kids and two cats and a normal life. And so you need to control in here. The only thing you ever can control are your thoughts. With Carrie, it's like unpicking the layers of an onion until you get to the core and go, that's it. It was this feeling of a little girl whose mother had so many different people turning up and leaving. And she was fostered, then she was put into care, then she was taken back, and then her father turned up, and then he died. And it was this chaos that a child can't make sense of chaos. So they start lining up all their toys in a particular way and folding everything just so, because they feel in that way, I've got order in the chaos, except they don't know how to stop it because the mind says, this, this is soothing. This is reassuring. You know, a child has very few resources when they're living in a crazy world. They can't think, well, I'll go out tonight or I'll, I'll do something, I'll, I'll make a nice dinner. They, they almost have no ability to control craziness except to control their tiny environment. How did you help her identify where it came from? Because I'm just thinking about people at home right now that yeah. recognize they have OCD. They don't necessarily know if they can do anything about it. You know, um, how, what are the questions that people can start to ask themselves now to recognize they have yeah, it? That's a good and thing. then if you wouldn't mind also taking us through um, where she becomes the hurter. Yeah. So RTT has got several modules. One of them is called It's Not Me. And that's actually probably one of the most powerful tools. And yet it takes minutes. So a client will look at a scene. Oh, I see. It was a crazy house. We had no money. My mum was always drinking. I'd come home. She was lying on the floor drunk. And But I tidied everything up. I made everything just so. And that's how I felt better. So the first step we ask is, when did this happen? Because I don't know. Well, let's have a look at that. Let's go back to before it happened. And then we looked at why it happened, what went on. I usually try to find three or four scenes because it's important to daisy chain them together and get the meaning because it's never the scene. It's the meaning you attach to it. My mom isn't here, so she doesn't love me. That may, mom may love them very much, maybe working two jobs to pay for stuff. So that isn't true, but it feels true. My dad is always shouting, it's my fault. Well, dad may be very stressed, but a child doesn't have any logic, so they can't work stuff out. And that's the saddest thing for children, when they don't get love and care, when their needs aren't met, they don't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves immediately, and often permanently too. And so Can I just say sorry to stop you there? That was so powerful. I heard you say that in your book as well, and it really hit yeah, me. It's so a sad. child doesn't stop loving their parents, no, they stop, they loving, stop themselves. loving themselves. Because they think it's their fault. Yeah, my mummy yeah. is me. I'm nice to my mummy, but she's shouting at me. So I'll try to be good, but she's still shouting at me. I guess it's my fault. I'm not good. And we see that with somebody like Marilyn Monroe. They carry that with them forever. And so what I do is very quickly go and go, look. What you did was actually age appropriate. You didn't do anything wrong. There's a very sad um, story in the book about a girl whose 
sister drowned in a park because her father took one sister to the bathroom, left the other one in a park, which is kind of crazy. There are dogs, there are weird people. And when they came out of the bathroom, she was drowned. And he always said, that was your fault. You killed your sister. I mean, even though she knew she didn't, she needed someone like me to go, look, no, you didn't. You didn't do anything wrong. You were four. Children of four say, I need to go to the bathroom. Children of four, what you do, it's called age-appropriate behavior. They don't know that, you know, if you tip over nail violence, you'll ruin the carpet. They don't know that if you, um, if you lock the cat in, it will throw up everywhere. They don't know. And so when I got her to say, but that's not me, I was four, I needed to go to the bathroom, I didn't kill my sister, it's not me, it wasn't me. So first they go, that's not me. And you make them say three. that out loud yeah. in the session, They, they right? have to say, and you can do this at home, by the yeah. way, that's not me because that little kid who wore secondhand clothes, who was shoplifting groceries, that's not me. I did it for a reason. I don't do that now, I never need to do that again. So I make them see that it's not them. And then often we do do something called dialogue with the hurter. And so this girl had to go back and say to her dad, I'm so sorry my sister drowned. It must have been awful for you. And I know you cope by blaming me, but you and I both know I was four. You were in your 30s. It was not my fault. Do not ever put that on me. And it gives them empowerment. I always think as a therapist, I have a job. And my job is to give my clients freedom and empowerment, that's what they need. So having them say to someone, you had no right to do that, you had no right. You know, I worked with somebody once who had a baby, had another baby and became so depressed that I, I, don't, I can't have these two children, I don't want them. It sounded so weird, but then she remembered that when she was at school, her mother had two babies and the mother worked in a bar, was having a great time, bringing home different people. And she had to come home to school and raise these children, couldn't ever go to a party or a sleepover, and was so resentful. And when she had her own to her mind went, oh, you've just done it again. Look, you're at home with two babies. And so she had to sort of have a dialogue. No, no. I was 11, and they weren't my children. I'm now 40. These are my children. I love them. I want to. It's not the same. See, when the mind starts to look, to look for what's the same, it finds it. Oh, this just feels the mm -hmm. same. But if you look for what's different, you find that too. And so many of my clients keep looking for what's the same. Every person dumps me. Nothing ever works out. It's just the same. No, it's completely different. And that's the rule of your mind. If you, Whatever you look for and focus on, you will find. And so with Mo, and indeed with Caroline, they were looking for not what's the same, but what's different. I don't live in a crazy house with multiple partners of my mum. I'm not being put up into care again. I'm not going into foster care. I'm not living with a mother who can't get over the death of her five-year-old. So when they look for what's different, completely different, they start to live in the different world mm -hmm. and not the same world, and that's so important. But what's also very important is that I don't tell them, I let them work it out. And we can all do that. It's not me, I don't have to eat everything on my plate. I don't have to buy cheap stuff. I don't have to get obsessed with turning the heating off. That was my dad's world. It's not mine. Oh God, it's so powerful. And do you advise them to say it out loud multiple times? Yeah. Like what's the, it's just. just. Just once maybe, you know, just really get into it. So one of my clients was telling me that her father said, oh, 
if any man ever wants to date you, you must be an idiot because you've got nothing to offer anyone. You're like your mum. You probably blow up like a balloon when you get pregnant, just like she did. Waste of space. And, you know, that's a terrible thing to tell a daughter. And I said, but, you know, your dad's an idiot. (laughs) Your dad's an idiot. He's an unhappy, unsuccessful, wasted his life idiot. And people like that want you to be the same because they feel better if you're the same, you know, miserable people like miserable people, then they feel better. When you're successful and happy, he's going to feel awful. So you have to say, that's not me. I was brought up with an idiot. Many people are, but I can have an amazing life. I can find someone that loves me. I love me. I'm going to have a different life to my dad. I'm nothing like him. Thank goodness. So she only really had to say it once, but you have to really say it. And then just remember it and then think, well, I don't have to do that anymore. Can I ask you then, in that situation, what if you don't believe it? So, like, I know you're saying, well, your dad's the idiot, not mm-hmm. you. There's that difference between, okay, I hear you saying it, but I still feel it. I still believe that I'm an idiot. Yeah. Do you still advise him to still say it? Like, or is there a different technique when you don't actually believe it, even though you can see yeah. very clearly? You know, you're reminding me of a client that came to see me once, and he said, I'm the loneliest person in the world. I don't have a girlfriend. I've never been married. I have no friends. I work from home as a strategist, and I'm just so lonely, it's killing me. And I said, okay, well, let's look back. So I was looking back at his childhood, and he went, no, I didn't have a childhood. What do you mean? He said, well, I never went to school. My mother homeschooled me. I was her little prince. My mother homeschooled me. She took me to visit all her friends. I never had a friend. And I'm thinking that's very selfish. And he said, oh, no, my mother was a saint. She was an angel. Do you know she sacrificed her whole life for me? So I can't possibly say these things to her. Like I would have had him say, Mum, why did you do so selfish? I went, okay, why don't we start from there? Let's say, Mum, Mum, you're an angel. Such an angel. You sacrificed your whole life that he began. And he suddenly went, what a bitch. <laughs> she, she, I didn't even go to school. I didn't even have friends. She even emancipated my dad. He slept in the spare room. And he suddenly got it because I let clients start with that. If you think your mother was an angel, let's start there. Mum, you're an angel. Or mum, you know, you, you didn't mean to do anything. I know that you had good intentions. I mean, there are a lot of cultures who are never going to say to their mother, how dare you, because it's very important to respect that person. So wherever they are, and if they don't believe it, then sometimes I just get them to leave it by saying, okay, you think that little girl was stupid and ugly and annoying, but if someone gave you that little girl, would you still say she's stupid? Would you still say she's annoying? So sometimes... What really helps is to bring in another person, Mm. a a little child of their own, a godchild, someone they're looking after and to say, do you think they should? And then they go, oh, no, I wouldn't allow it. Well, why do you allow it then? Mm. And that the third person really helps. When you have a child, would you allow that to happen? You know, one of my clients, he's not in the books, an amazing man, was telling me that his parents put him on the street when he was 11. I said, when did you go back? He went, no, I never went back. I said, what do you mean? He says, I never went back. I didn't get on with my mum, you see. And what they do is they normalise it. He tried to explain that it was his culture. I said, people wouldn't put a dog on the street. He went, you know, I never thought about that because I have dogs. I would never put my dogs on the street. And then he got it. And he had all these weeping sores. And it was, I said to him, you know, your, your body is crying. 
because you don't express pain. You've never said that wasn't okay. And when he began to say, of course it wasn't okay to be put on the street, or people say, well, you know, my dad touched me, but he couldn't help it because my mum, you see, wasn't interested in him. I'm like, but that's not okay. And so many clients do normalize having to go out and beg for groceries in a store, having to take stuff. They, they kind of normalize it because it was made normal. And they need someone to say in a very nice way, that, that's not okay. And then they get to say, it's not me. I deserve better. It wasn't okay. But I don't have to wallow in it now. Mm. I'm now free to move on because I can see that, you know, we, there's, I use this expression a lot. We play the only part we've ever known until we make that part our own. So Marilyn Monroe was forever the girl that wasn't good enough, even though the whole world loved her. So we have a part, and we keep playing it and playing it and playing it until someone says, or that book says, look, you can have a different part today. You don't have to play that part anymore, ever. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you you anymore and that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doctor that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc.com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for absolutely free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Lisa. ZocDoc.com slash Lisa. God, isn't there something though almost like, there's almost like a little safety in um, normalizing it because then you're not making up sure. and not telling yourself it's yeah. because I'm bad or yeah. because of me. Yeah, and also that the most vexing thing about the mind is that it wants to go back to what's familiar. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like unfamiliar. Unfamiliar is scary. So the human mind wants to go back to what's familiar. It wants to go back to what it knows while avoiding what it doesn't know. So if you win the lottery and you've never had money, you, you're going to be bankrupt in three years because you won't think, oh, I've got all this money. You'll get rid of it. And 70% of lottery winners do that. So we know that that happens statistically. So, yeah, that, that is a battle of it's the fact that the mind loves what it already knows. 
and he doesn't like what he doesn't know. But so what? You know, you and I didn't grow up in houses like this. I didn't have an ensuite bathroom. I, I'd never flown first class in my life. I didn't have a credit card. But I don't go, oh, well, I, I don't know what that's like, you see. I don't give me a credit card. I, I could never have a beautiful home. But another fact is that you can make anything you like familiar. And if you want to have a happy life, make good thoughts, praising yourself and changing the only part you've ever known familiar, and then your life can be extraordinary. But it is a choice, mm -hmm. I'm gonna choose. So I date idiots, I've always done that. I was raised by two of them, and of course I'm dating losers. But hang on, why don't I choose to date someone better? It feels a bit weird, but that's not hard, it's just unfamiliar. But it's like putting a bit of silicone on your finger and shoving it in your eye. That doesn't feel very familiar either. If you do it every day, you can do it without a mirror. You can make anything familiar. You just got to persist a little bit. And that's why I have in that book something called RTT for me, which is all the little things that you can do. But often it's like, I mean, I know you love working out, but that didn't just happen. Mm. And now it's become familiar and you love it, don't you? I do. But you weren't born like that. I love that. And so how do you start making something familiar? Because you talk about, and I'm, you talk about three loop, most of us have three looping mm. thoughts. Number one, I'm not enough. Yeah. Number two, I'm different, so I can't connect. Mm -hmm. And number three, what I want isn't available to me. Those three thoughts obviously are extremely detrimental mm. to a lot and of everyone us. has them to some degree. So how do we break that? Because it becomes so familiar, mm. right? So it's looping. So Sometimes familiar. we don't even realize we're doing yeah. it. Then when we realize it's still hard to stop. Mm. Um, so how do you break that in order to then get to the next? You know, first of all, it's important to understand change is not hard. Staying the same is much harder. People say it's so hard to change. No, it isn't. It's hard to stay the same. Get everything in your life and say, oh, I could have had a different life. It's not hard to change make a decision to change, that's the hardest bit, and then it becomes easy. So if you want to change, what you have to do is start saying, I am going to make this familiar. I'm taking sugar out of my tea. I don't love it, I'm making it. I'm gonna get up early and do the plank. I don't love it, but if I say, I am making this familiar, I'm dating a better quality of person, I'm asking for a better job, I'm pushing myself. Instead of going, oh, it's so hard, I go, it's, it's just unfamiliar but I can make it familiar. I mean, flossing your teeth wasn't familiar. Peeing in the toilet wasn't familiar for the first two years of your life, but you can make anything familiar with a little bit of persistence. But what really helps is to say the magic expression. I have chosen to make this familiar and I've chosen to feel great about it. You know, I, I gave up milk, cow's milk years ago. I really missed it. I gave up sugar in my tea and now I can't even imagine ever going back. Mm. I used to live on Diet Coke. I would never drink that. I missed it, but I kept saying, no, making this familiar, dating a different caliber of person. It was a choice to go, no, I can make this familiar. It, it, the hardest part is to not change. The human brain is capable of rewiring itself. That's what neuroplasticity means. Your brain will rewire itself if you think different thoughts. And we think hundreds of thoughts every day. You might as well think better ones because it actually changes your entire life. And I think, I think people think it's hard because they don't know how to do it. Well, I don't know what to do. I've, I've read this book, Love Yourself. What does that even mean? Cover myself in lotion, buy myself some candy, go to bed with a little accessory. Well, what is it? it so I don't tell people that. I say, look, do this. 
like that. Do this, say that, do that. Because so many books to help you mean well, but they don't really give you enough instructions. And I think I wanted to write a manual that made it very clear if you do this, if you say this, if you think that, and it will take less than five minutes a day, it can change your life. Because people, I think, have a belief that change is long. It's like no one says, I go to the gym, do 100 sit-ups and have a six-pack. It's, it's, you have to keep mm. going. But many times change is instant. We see something, hear something, think that's it. I'll never do that again. And so it isn't hard. What's hard is not having a roadmap to show you what mm. to do. And that's why I wrote that book, because I wanted it to be a roadmap. You know, uh, one of my favorite people in there is Ryan, the alcoholic. Mm, yeah, please talk about him. And um, he says something many alcoholics have told me. When I went to therapy, they said, you're trying to kill yourself. And he said, but I was trying to stay alive. I was in so much pain that drinking stopped me killing myself. And I've heard that over and over again from clients. I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was trying to not kill myself because I needed to be comfortably numb. Mm. And for some people, feeling is so painful. And so it's really important. So with, with, with Ryan, with the alcoholic, it was all about being gay, being rejected by his dad, feeling worthless, picking a succession of partners who treat him horribly. And, and, and often it isn't just one thing, it's lots of addictions. And he just never thought he was enough. His looping thought was, I'm not enough. And then he realized his dad didn't feel enough. It was nothing to do with him. So the I'm not enough, you just take out the not and start saying I'm enough, even if you don't believe, if you think it's a complete, complete ridiculous, mm. whatever you tell your mind, it starts to make it real. It doesn't care. And so you have to start saying I matter, I'm enough, I'm significant. And strange as it sounds, it kicks in really fast. And first it's what you do, then it becomes who you are, then it starts to feed back to you all on its own. Whether I'm different so I can't connect, that's everyone's greatest fear to be different. And if it's everyone's greatest fear, if you have it, you must be the same as everyone. So the very fact that you think that thought means you're not different, you're the same. And it's not available to me. Well, many of us went through life. Love wasn't available. We got secondhand stuff, free school lunches, but no one says, hey, I'd love a mobile phone, but there's just no way. I didn't have that when I was three, you see. I'd love Sony or Alexis, but I can't have it because I didn't have it when I was two. I mean, all the stuff in my, I didn't have Sony, Alexa, all the things I have in my house, cable TV, I didn't have any of that mm. stuff. But I have it now because I went out and got it because I made it available. So if you didn't have love or success or joy or wealth, that's a shame. But you can go out and get it. And many people have look at Oprah Winfrey came from nothing and went out and got everything. So you can always do that. Look at Madonna, you know, she's one of, I think, eight children, no mother. But sometimes that drives you. And I think if you have that, I'll show you attitude. Mm -hmm. that, that worked for me because a lot of the stuff I have now, 
I couldn't even have dreamed of my life when I was a kid. That's what I was going to ask you, because some people will go the, the route of you, Madonna, right? Yeah. Where it's like, I'll show you. And then you yeah. really do work, yeah. like succeed. And then there are others that take that on mm. themselves, that it must be true. Yeah. Right? And I think you even said um, you want to focus on feelings, not facts, yeah. because we perceive it as a yeah. fact, but it actually isn't. Yeah. But those people that think of it as a fact mm. then act in accordance. Yeah. So they don't do anything. They no. don't believe in themselves, believe in the, the dreams or the yeah. goals that they can achieve. Because they've told themselves a lie. Yeah. I don't matter. Yeah. And if you're going to your birth, yeah, tell yourself, you're a, tell better yourself lie. a lie, tell yourself a better one. I don't matter. You know, it's like that guy in that movie Catch Me If You Can mm -hmm. that Leo played. And, you know, he was he, now he works for the FBI because he had a gift. He could have said, oh, I'm just a criminal. I can't make my life work. But he took a talent he had and monetized it. And you can always do that. I'm not saying it's a choice. But sometimes we have to look at the lies we're telling us. Who's going to love me? Well, somebody. What can I do? More than you could possibly imagine. Why would anyone love me? I've got cellulite and two kids. Well, if you've got two kids, you've got love in your life already. You wake up with love, so now you can just have more love. And maybe that person will love you because they love your kids. And so we've got to be so careful because, as I say in that book, our greatest pain is not caused by our dad saying, nobody's going to want you, you're rubbish. Or our teacher saying, you'll never amount to anything, which my teacher told me. It's the lies we tell ourselves. Mm. They hurt us the most. I'm no good. Nobody will want me. I've got nothing to offer. Everyone has something to offer the world, everyone. And you just have to decide. I don't know what it is, but... I've got something. That's very powerful. Um, so I want to talk about Terry. So oh, yes, Terry, Terry numbing out, she mm. lost two children. She did. And in that situation, the reason why I want to talk about her is because she'd been, she'd seen the pain. Mm. And because of that, she became so fearful to mend mm -hmm. her heart. Yeah. Talk to me about her and well, her story. Terry came in, I was teaching a class and she came in and she came up and I'd work in front of the class and the first thing she said was, do not take me back, because that's what I do, I go back. I always want to go back to where did this begin? Because if I found out where it began, I can stop it straight away. And she said, do not take me back. And she told me two babies had died of congenital heart defects. She had two living children, one of them had this heart defect. And, and she said, I don't want you to mend my heart because it might break again. And I said, but you have a very functional heart. All it knows how to do is keep repairing itself. It's kept going for so long. So she had a belief. If I get better and my heart breaks, it will kill me. Yeah. And so she'd learned to numb out. She just was flatlining all the time. There were no highs, there were no lows. But that was very bad for her children to see her like that. She was on autopilot. But she had a belief, if I feel it will hurt me, and, and so that's how she coped. And people would say to her, you're so strong, you'll be okay. She said, I wasn't okay. But she had no support, her husband left her when those two babies died, and so she learned to cope. Like the Energizer Bunny really, just keep mm. going. And I think for her, it was a decision. It, it's safe to feel. Terry, you can feel. You can feel joy and pain. You can't have one, you can have both. And if you cope with all this pain, you'll be okay because you, you've got great coping skills. And so she made a decision to feel. And I said, how will you know? And she burst into tears and said, I haven't cried for years. But, and it was so lovely. She went out dancing that night. And over the next few weeks, 
she felt lots of feelings, both good and bad, because the thing is, I'm not going to feel, I can't feel the pain. When you're numb, you can't feel anything. So she had to choose, okay, I'm ready to feel and I will feel pain, but I'll also feel joy. And she said it's been extraordinary that now she can feel all her emotions because we'd love to all say, can I just have the good ones, please? Mm. The minute you have a baby, you know they could get ill. You fall in love, they could die. So she kind of just understood that it, it was safe to feel, that she had a functional heart and it would repair itself. Every time it got broken, it would repair itself. And rather like, I think they call it wabi-sabi in Japan where you fix the cracks with gold oh, and the broken yeah. heart is even more beautiful. Because, of course, you know, being a bodybuilder, when you want to build a muscle, you've got to break it, mm-hmm. and then it gets bigger. So I said, you've got a big, beautiful heart, and she believed that, and she went on to live an extraordinary life. That's I'm very proud of her. That's beautiful, because while that's such a like, heartbreak, I can't even imagine. I know, nobody There's can so imagine. many women, especially, that have broken hearts yeah, from relationships, from different situations. Mm. And, you know, that many people that I hear from are... I, I thought I was in love, they were the love of my life, yeah. and they totally, they, you know, crestfallen, and mm-hmm. they are now so fearful of trying to get into a new relationship because they don't know if their heart mm. can mend again. But it can. I mean, our bodies mend themselves. If you cut your, if I cut my hand, it will heal itself, unless I keep pulling it open, then I might get septicemia. But in nature, wounds heal. You know, we're, human beings are resilient, they're strong. We think we're weak and feeble, we're not. We're not fragile. We're really strong, and often we choose to tell ourselves a lie. Uh, if I get ghosted one more time, that's it. Mm-hmm. If one more person dumps me, it'll be the end of my life. It won't be. You'll find someone way better. You should go back and thank all the men that dumped you. I'm so grateful I got dumped. I wouldn't have met my lovely husband <laughs> if I hadn't been. You should get on your hands and go, thank you, God, that that idiot dumped me, because I found somebody way better. That was just my starter. <laughs> to start a marriage and I've got a better one. So nobody gets away without pain, but it's what do you do with the pain? And so there is no charmed, gilded life. But you know, the, you are flawed and I'm flawed and the best you can ever be is to understand you're a flawed person having a flawed relationship with a flawed person. It's what I call flawsome. You don't want to be flawsome. <laughs> you want to be flawsome, you know. Be proud of your flaws. Say, yeah, I'm a real person. And then you don't have to pretend. You know, the idea that somebody could come along and break your heart is that you're looking, am I good enough for them? You should go, hey, are they good enough for me? That's what women do a lot. Will he like me? It's like, forget about will he like you. Will you like him? Mm. You know, I said to people, you're the stone. They're just the setting. So don't ever be the setting. Be the stone. You're the sparkly one. And when you're going on a date, never go, I hope he likes me. I hope I'm good enough. Say, I hope I like him. And I hope he's good enough to come into my world. Because the minute you elevate that sense of self-worth, you have a different energy. I hope these mothers at the school gate like me. Hey, I hope I like them because I don't need them. The minute you say, I hope I fit in, you're setting yourself up to be rejected. You fit in, connect to yourself, and then you can connect to the whole world because... You don't, we do need people, but you're not needy. Don't, don't be that person going, oh, where's my other half? Because you're not half, mm. you're a whole person. You don't even need anyone to complete you. But when you feel complete, you'll find lots of people that want to hang out with you. But that whole thing about, I, I need my other half. I'm trying to find my mate. 
I need someone to make me whole again. But you're not, you're already whole. You don't need any of that. I love that. Um, you said something that was so powerful because it's, it's so simple, yet it really hit me. Where it was like, it wasn't a physical thing. It was an emotional thing. Mm. And so many people going to, they want to be accepted. They think they'll be accepted if I lose the weight mm. or if I look like this way. And so I'm going to go to the gym. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh my God, it's because I didn't go to the gym. And that's why I'm not liked. Where we all then create our story yeah. that leads to something. But with Joe, it was so powerful how you broke it down and really got to the root of what that problem was. If you don't mind taking me through that, because yeah. I really wonder how many people, especially women, turn to food because of the emotional aspect. Well, when you're stressed, the first thing you give up are healthy habits immediately. Stress makes you give up anything that's healthy. So going to the gym, juicing, making salads, all goes out of the window when you're stressed. And if you imagine what happens when you're stressed all the time, children who are stressed, by the way, they have no recourse except the cookie jar because what else? They can't go shopping, go online and order something nice, run themselves a bubble bath, go and book a massage. They don't have any of those options. Let me do a Zoom with all my friends or invite them over for a barbie because you're a kid. So children who are stressed use food. But you're right, it's an emotional thing. It's a regressive act. When I was a baby, my mum gave me this milky, creamy, mushy stuff and oh, everything was, I felt loved, I felt connected, I felt significant, I got attention. So when we say we don't go, I need some flaked almonds, you go, I need Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> I need macaroni. No one says, I need some celery. I, I, I need some lettuce. They go, I need pizza. Take anything that's got the combination of half fat and half sugar, which, mm. by the way, only exists in breast milk. There's no food that is that perfect combination naturally. Mm. There's plenty that's made. And so it's a regressive. We don't go, I'm having such a wonderful day. I think I need a whole tub of ice cream. We go, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm overworked. Mm. I'm under pressure, and then our mind goes back to, hey, do you remember what worked 32 years ago? I think it will still work. Go and lose yourself in the cookie jar. And we do, and it's also environmental. It's what I call fight. We heard of fight and flee, but it's actually fight, flee, feed. So you're standing there, and there looks like there's a lion over there, and you can flee or you can fight, usually flee, you're all that adrenaline, and then you think, oh my God, I need to, now you're eating lots of berries to get the energy back, but now it's your inbox. So I said, my inbox, shall I fight or flee? Well, I can't flee and I can't fight, but I can certainly feed. And so it's the same thing. I've got the inbox, I've got my hand in the potato chips. And so most overeating issues are, are anthropological. We're wired to go back to where sugar is. We're wired to eat food when we see it. That, that kept us alive. You didn't have a chance five years ago, I don't fancy a bit of um, deer. I think I'll wait until tomorrow because there wasn't any. Mm. You're wired to eat when you're stressed. And your body actually wants you to hold on to weight because even 1,500 years ago, we died more of starvation than anything else. So whenever we're stressed, we are hardwired and super-coded to eat. Mm. And there's no way you can fix that logically. One of my clients said, you know, I ordered something like Jenny Craig. It all turned up, put it out on the counter. I'd eaten the whole week's food by the end of the day, everything. I just ate it all because it was there. But that's a primitive thing because when you see food, you're wired to eat it because that's what keeps you alive. You know, hundreds of years ago, our appetite would kick off the minute we saw some food because if we thought, oh, I'm... 
I'm not in the mood for mango and berries. And then two days later, we think, oh my God, I've, there's no food and someone else has eaten it now. So it's very important to look at the environmental reason why we do what we do. Mm. And then you can say, oh, it's not my fault, but I can actually work around it. I mean, the biggest thing is that we're wired to be terrified of hunger. You know, most people will say, this is illogical. I'm, I'm just about to drive home. It's an hour's drive down the freeway. I've got a lovely chicken casserole in the house, but I've stopped at the petrol station. I'm now eating candy bars. What's the matter? Because hunger is scary. It used to kill you. And your mind goes, this could kill you. You need to eat all those jelly beans. But then you, when you understand, oh, it's environmental, you can say, look, it could kill me. I get that, but not in an hour. And in an hour, I'm going to be turning off my freeway, and I've got that lovely chicken already cooked, so I'm going to wait. So it's understanding how to dialogue with your mind, because it's not the event ever. It's how you feel about the event, which you are free to change at any time. How do you decipher that in, the, in those moments, though? Because I totally understand everything you just broke down was so eloquent, and I completely get why we turn to food. Um, so I understand the hardwiring, but take me through, for instance, so my mum, I grew up with my mum, uh, when I grew up, she was anorexic, and then as I got a, as a, an adult, she became obese. And as she was getting heavier and heavier, Quest was succeeding more and more, so I had more financial freedom. So I was just trying to throw money at the problem, mm. like, oh, well, that's the reason why, because my mum's never had the right nutrition coach, sure. she's never necessarily gone to the gym or had anyone maybe to come to her and help her. So I was like, this is perfect. So I was trying to basically throw money at the situation and my mum got worse. Yeah. And so there are moments where it becomes such a crutch that you don't think that it's possible to un to um, turn it around. Mm. But then there's that third one, like with Joe, who once you started to really break it mm. down, it became the self-sabotage. Yeah. Talk about the self-sabotage part of it. Well, it's the same thing, I'm not enough. If I'm not enough, I don't deserve love. I don't deserve anything, so I'm going to sabotage. I'm going to self-destruct. I'm going to stop myself having love. I've met a nice person, but I'm acting out. I'm being really difficult. I'm being really mean, or I'm not turning up. I've got this great job, and I'm finding myself staying up all night watching Ozark, and I'm not even getting up for work. What's going on? Sabotage and self-destruction habits are nothing more than an extension of I'm not enough. I don't deserve this, let me get rid of it. Mm. I remember Sandra Bullock's husband saying that. He said, I married the best girl in the whole world. And then I set about ruining it. But he didn't add anything because I never believed I was worth it. That's why, you know, my whole thing or my bracelet about the I'm enough movement. You know, you have to go back to the core of the onion and start saying I am worth it. So any time we're denying ourselves, it's like, you know, your mother, it's very classic when you're anorexic and you live in starvation for so long, eventually you do tend to tip over into bulimia because the body can't tolerate starving for too long. And then you've suppressed something so much that whatever you suppress starts to run you, it starts to motivate. It's like people who suppress their sexu sexual urges tend to get overwhelmed by them. People who suppress their appetite tend to be obsessed with food. People who don't sleep start to get obsessed with sleeping because you've suppressed something so natural. But with your mother, of course, it's you can't fix that. You have to go back to saying, well, why did you become anorexic? What was going on? What was the thought process? Because usually it's control. Again, it's like mm -hmm. OCD. 
if I chop up the apple and weigh everything and, and limit myself, I'm controlling something here. And then, of course, from that great control, you become out of control, bulimic eating, trolleyfuls of stuff, and then vomiting. And all of these issues and illnesses, you know, and I used to work for Jane Fonda. That was one of my first jobs. Mm -hmm. And I'd see all these girls coming in with body dysmorphia, bulimic, anorexic, orthorexic. Um, and I remember an exercise, and I remember thinking, this is, this is just insane. They're trying to fix this with aerobics. Mm. You can't fix an emotional problem with aerobics or weighing and measuring food. You have to go back to what's going on. Well, you know, my dad didn't love me. You probably remember Jasmine in the book who was bulimic and her dad wasn't there, but occasionally he'd turn up and he'd give her particular candies, two types, skips and strawberry chewits, they're English. And that was her thing. Whenever she was here, she'd go and buy exactly the same food, skips and strawberry chewits, because in eating the food, she felt his love. Like many people, she was looking for love in the wrong places. Mm. It's not in a chocolate bar. It's not in a tub of Ben and Jerry's. It's in you. And when you feel worthy of love, you can find it. When you feel unworthy, you'll eat your feelings. You know, the stomach is the seat of all emotions. It was a I felt that fear in my stomach. Oh, I was so excited. My stomach was doing flips. And so we try to push our feelings down with drugs or food or alcohol. But you know, your feelings are the most real thing you have. You can't Netflix them. You can't Amazon them. You can't Krispy Kreme donut them. You can't drink them or smoke them. You have to eventually feel them. And, and of course, your mother, like many people, was using anorexia not to feel when you're so busy being anorexic you're not feeling and then when you're so busy being obese you're not really feeling mm. and the question is what is it you're trying not to feel sometimes it's an unhappy marriage can be an unhappy childhood but you can run away from your feelings they are going to be right behind you but when you say okay why don't I just feel what I'm feeling I feel rage or envy or sadness or loss but if you feel it it actually goes away really quickly because its job is to go, hey, it's like a little child, notice me. Mm. And when you tune in, it will actually go away. I'm feeling intense jealousy about my sister-in-law. Okay, well, that's true, but she's not a bad person. She's worked hard for what she's got. Maybe I'm feeling that I should do what she does. You often get a lesson from your feelings. Mm. Is that what you call learned helplessness from when you're a child? Yeah, when you're a child, you know, you might look at mum crying because she can't pay the heating or dad getting so upset because he can't make enough money. And it's a bit like a train track for a child. It goes, I must fix this, but I can't, but I must, but I can't, but I must, but I can't, I can't, but I must. And it's when you learn to be helpless and hopeless, I can't fix it. And many adults simply carry that on for no other reason than they couldn't fix it then, mm. so they can't fix it now. And we forget the immense power we have to fix it. Like, you know, for instance, if, if a house caught on fire, a child will get under the bed and pull the covers over their head. That's what they do. Their bed is their safe place. No adult says, oh, the house is on fire. Let me pull the sheets over my head and lie here. <laughs> they, they call the fire brigade. They put towels under mm. the door. They, they climb out of a window. So it isn't true. But what is true is that many people get stuck in that helplessness. My dad doesn't love me, therefore I can't find love. 
we don't have money. You know, so many children are damaged by two things. Parents saying, I don't know where the money's coming from. I, I don't know where to find the money because you don't find money. You go out and monetize a talent. And if you say that to a child, we can't find the money slipping through our fingers. There's not enough money. They get very panicky that money should be found. And where do you find it? But the second thing they do wrong is they say to the kid, okay, you've got to mow the lawn or clean out the guinea pig's cage to get some money. And they have to do something they hate. And now they've learned the second thing. You only get money by doing something you really, really hate. Mm. And so it's better to say to your kid, you know, do you love cooking? You can make dinner. You know they're going to make the kitchen a complete disaster, but you've got to get over that. Try and give them a little job that they at least enjoy so they can think, oh, you get money by doing something you like and being really good at it. Having to wash the trash cans is a terrible job to give your kids or washing the dishes after dinner because now they're learning. We can't find money, but the only way is to do something you hate. Mm. And how can that ever promote kids that say, wow, I can go out, I've got a gift and I can do something amazing and I can monetize it too. I love it so much. Um, everything you talk about is definitely about the mind, the power of belief. Yeah. And I've heard you say basically there's two outcomes of the belief. It's one is transformation and the second one is destruction. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So if you believe you're not lovable, now you've got a choice. I don't think I'm lovable. I can be destroyed by that or transformed. I can go, well, I can go out and find love. There's people all over the world who've got love who are not looking like supermodels. There's everyday people have love. And so, yeah, you, you, your words shape your reality. If you don't like your reality, you don't have to go to the gym or start juicing or have, nothing has to be waxed off or injected in. The only thing you have to change are your thoughts. When you change your thoughts, it changes your entire life. I mean, that's the thing. You don't know what someone else finds sexy or desirable or compelling or interesting. And we're supposed to be different, that's how we learn. So we're all trying to be the same. You know, I gotta have thin thighs and big hair, but I've got big thighs and thin hair, so that mean I don't care. No, some people love big thighs and thin hair. You know, be yourself, you can have piercings, you can shave your head. My grand used to say to me, every pan has a lid. And you're someone's lid and someone is your pan and you don't have to be a different pan. You just got to fall in love with yourself because the minute you think, I like myself, I got something to offer the world. After all, I'm kind, I'm nice, I'm fun, I'm friendly, I'm interesting. That's what we like. We don't really care about, you know, the labels or the numbers. So if you could just put your energy into falling in love with you, instead of trying to fit into a mold to make someone else love you, the minute you fall in love with you, your world will change so dramatically. People think, wow, I like that. But we're so busy saying, could you like me? You know, that's the thing I talk about a lot about unmet needs. When, I'm, when the child's needs aren't met, you know, when you're a kid, you have very simple needs. I need to be loved, I need to be connected, I need to be safe. It's not really much, is it? You're a bit older, you need a few more. I need you to be proud of me. Me just to celebrate me on my birthday, maybe turn up to my school play. And not much, again, love, safe connected, proud of me, and celebrate me every now and again. But if those needs are not met, and for many of us they're not, now we only do one or two things. We give the need up immediately. I'm never going to find love. I'm never going to have a great job. I'm not going to ask for anything. I'll never ask for anything. 
We know we won't get anything, but we've given the need up or we give it away. We have to meet these needs ourselves. My need to be loved, I got to meet that need. My need to feel safe, I got to, my need to feel I matter. I can't give that need up and I can't give it away, but I can meet it. And when you start to meet your own needs, it's extraordinary because it's not about anything other than I'm worth it. Mm. I'm lovable. I don't have to change anything. And people find that very compelling. They like you when you like yourself. And when you like yourself, you like them. So it's a win-win. People like people who like them and who like themselves. But they don't have people who say, oh, am I okay? Mm. What have I done wrong? You know, and that's another way to, to elevate your team. Stop. Don't say like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. I'm so sorry. I know I'm difficult. I'm so sorry. I don't understand how this computer works. I'm sorry you go... Thanks for waiting for me. Thanks for, thanks for showing me how to do this bit of tech because I don't thank you so much. But stop saying sorry. Just, just be yourself and be happy to be flawsome. Flawsome. I love that. And if you're going to tell yourself a lie, tell yourself a, a better, better lie. lie. Yeah. yeah. Right, so where can people find you? I could talk to you literally forever. Um, but where can people find you and your book and all the amazing things you're doing? So this book's on Amazon. It's got wonderful reviews. I'm so pleased. People are saying that it's changed them dramatically just by reading it. It also has four downloads in it completely free. One of them is installing your inner cheerleader. So you can find me on Amazon. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. It's all Marissa Peer. Guys, 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 I'm obsessed with this book. It is so good. Every single chapter, I'm telling you, has massive amounts of knowledge and gold, uh, nuggets of gold. So go get, check this out. Check out her. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life. Peace out. <laughs>